Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these brothers have some as they make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, then get their attention, and it's marked for you at Romans chapter 8. Now, most of you know that we are about halfway through a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, in which we have had 11 messages so far. We will pick that up next week. That's the plan, unless I don't finish what I have for this week in the time allotted, which is a possibility. But we'll pick that up either next week or the following. But for today, I wanted to take a break and consider a passage in Romans 8. Now, why? Why take a sudden excursion from the series that we're in? Well, for two reasons, one that's insignificant, but the other quite important. The more insignificant one is it's just good from time to time to have a change of pace, a break that perhaps focuses the mind a bit more. But the more important is that I do try to preach pastorally, and that means presenting from God's word what I think our congregation needs. And in my ministry to folks in the recent past, it's become clear to me that many of us are not applying the truth of who we are in Christ to the circumstances in which he has placed us. That is, most of us find ourselves in situations, whether personal relationships or circumstantial hardships, all of these things that we would not choose for ourselves. So how do we deal with those? What is our mindset and our heart set as we endure them? And most important, Where is God in our minds and hearts in the midst of those things? You see, when I interact with folks in the church to try to help them with what's happening in their lives, I'll often remind them that God is good and God is great. That is, he's in control and he has their best interests at heart. And without exception, the people I'm talking to agree. They agree at least intellectually. They assent to the truth that God is in control and that he loves us. But it does not grip their hearts so as to be the crucial factor in how they endure and respond to their trial. When I remind folks of those truths, I often get a response like, I know, Pastor, I know. I know that God is sovereign. And they say that almost with a sense of resignation. Because although he's in control, it doesn't appear to them that he's doing a very good job as the controller. And so they'll usually agree that God loves them. Although for some, since their situations are so contrary to what they they want and think should happen, they begin to even doubt that. But in the main, the response is just, I know, I know. Spoken with a bit of a sigh. So, dear CBC, do you know that the God who is in control of everything that happens in his world, including everything that's going on in your life, loves you? Do you know that? Do you know that he is with you? Do you know that he is moving heaven and earth to his appointed ends and all of that is designed to benefit you.
You see, we say, I know, I know. But do you really know in the sense that it has made a difference, that it made a difference yesterday, that it's going to make a difference tomorrow? We say we know. But please look at verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, which begins with these famous words, and we know. Now, the word and connects what follows with what precedes. What has been said in the chapters that come before Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 provide the basis for this passage. And this passage that's going to tell us what it is that we know. So what are those things that have preceded this verse that lay the foundation for what it's going to tell us we know? Well, what's been described in the previous passages are the amazing privileges that are given to those who are Christians. There are four of these. In Romans chapter 5, we are told we as Christians have peace with God. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, we have union with Christ. In chapter 7, that we've been freed from the law. In the first part of chapter 8, that we have life in the Spirit. Now, I want to take some time at the beginning to rehearse a bit about the backdrop to those four privileges so that when we get back to chapter 8, we're going to have a full understanding of what it is we know. So I'm going to take several minutes before we get to the outline that's inserted in your program. But we will get to it. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And we'll look at it in just a bit. You see, all of the privileges listed on the screen are due to the person and work of Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died to pay for our sins. And both of those, his perfect life and his death, are applied to us personally when we come to believe in him. So I'm going to ask you to hold your finger in Romans 8. We're going to come back to that. But I want to see the foundation for what we know. If you'll go back to chapter 4 and verse 24. Chapter 4, verse 24. God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, justification means that God looks at us just as if we had never sinned. And he sees us as having the absolute perfect righteousness of Jesus. And we get this by believing in him, it says. And this is underscored earlier in the book, at the end of chapter 3. Will you look with me at verse 21 of chapter 3? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This relationship with God that comes because we have a new position before him, because Jesus' life and death are applied to us, this is given amazingly to the people described in verse 23 that we just read. People all of whom have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet they all receive 
this blessing of justification, perfect standing before God. And the extent of that sin and its spiritually debilitating effects on us are described earlier in chapter 3. Verse 10 of chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So what's that mean? Before I came to Jesus and before I had his perfect life and his death applied to me personally, before that, what was my standing with God? I was separated from him because of these truths. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. There's no one good. Ah, but it's worse than that. Because chapter 2 and verse 5 says this. You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Storing up wrath, God's anger. And then one last verse, chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So let's recap that now. We have all of the things that are listed on the screen, peace with God, union with Christ, freedom from the law, and life in the Spirit, all because of the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, for people like us. People like us who are described as having sinned, People among whom no one is, was good, no one was righteous, who were under the wrath, the anger of God, who were storing up wrath against ourselves, who suppressed the truth in our ungodliness. Those people, people like us, have all of the stuff you see on the screen. How can that be? If you let it sink in, this grace is too amazing to be believed. It's too good to be true. As we say, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So is this too good to be true? Is it, in fact, the case that we all enjoy these benefits because of our relationship to Jesus, if, in fact, we have that? To eliminate any doubt, any tinge of doubt, is why chapter 8 ends with a section that starts where we began this morning. Chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know. And then what follows is designed to eliminate any doubt that all of those things on the screen apply to us despite the fact that we were the people that are described in those earlier chapters. The final 12 verses of Romans 8 give us the reasons we can be absolutely confident that we have all of these things, even when it doesn't look like it, and even when we don't feel like it's true. Earlier in chapter 8, it's acknowledged that we live in a fallen world with all the trouble that goes with that. Our personal sufferings of persecution and sickness and death, and even the natural world, the earth's upheavals and disasters. We live in that kind of world, one in which it's not obvious that we're on the winning side. And that, in fact, God will make all right for those who have these privileges. So we have to be reminded of what we know. And the Bible does that reminding 
with what one commentator calls five unshakable convictions. Verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That verse has these five unshakable convictions. I want to bounce through those. The first one is this, that God works. First, we know that God works or is at work in our lives. Now, many of you know that verse from the King James Version, which says all things work together for good. And if you think about the way that's worded, all things work together for good, it gives the impression that the subject of the sentence is things work. Well, things are not the subject of the sentence. And the truth is things don't just work. God is the subject of the sentence and God works things. Our God is ceaselessly and energetically and purposefully active on our behalf. He is working. The second unshakable conviction is this. God not only works, he works for our good. God is at work for the good of his people. God's nature is completely good, so his works are all expressions of his goodness and are all calculated to advance his people's good. But you see, friends, God knows what's really good. And he and he works all things to produce that, namely that we know him and that his good purposes in us are achieved. So God works. God works for our good. Another a third unshakable truth in that verse is that God works in all things. In all things include the sufferings. Back in verse 17 of chapter 8 and the groanings in verse 23 of chapter 8. So the TV preacher who tells you that it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and well all the time is again untrue. So all that is negative in this life is seen to have a positive purpose in the execution of God's eternal plan. Nothing is beyond the overruling, overriding scope of the providence of God in our lives. God works for our good in all things. And fourthly, he does that for those who love him. God works in all things for the good of those who love him. It's a necessary limitation. The Bible's not expressing a general superficial optimism that everything tends to everybody's good in the end. No, if the good, which is God's objective, is our completed salvation, then its beneficiaries are his people who are described as those who love him. Now, that's a somewhat unusual phrase in the Bible, that we love him. And especially in the writings of Paul, who gave us Romans, because most of the time, Love is the love of God for us. But remember, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your soul. And it's only God's children, those that God is at work in, who can do that. God works. God works for our good in all things, for those who love him, that is, who are his children. And then lastly, God works for his purpose. Those who love God are described in verse 28 as those who have, quote, been called according to his purpose. And God's purpose is to make us like him, as we're going to see in verse 29. He's working everything to that end. So life is not the random mess, which it sometimes appears to be. 
In every piece of the mess, God is working toward his purpose of making you and me like Jesus. So you've got these five unshakable convictions. And these five unshakable convictions are followed by five undeniable affirmations. In verses 29 and 30. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In those two verses, we're given explanation of what is meant in verse 28 by God's purpose, according to which he has called us and he's working everything together for our good. And first comes a reference to those that God foreknew. The first of these undeniable affirmations is that God foreknew his people. If you're God's child, he foreknew you. Now, the commonly understood meaning of to foreknow is to know something beforehand, in advance of it happening. That's not what it means here. First of all, in the sense of God, in that sense of knowing ahead of time what's going to happen, of course, God knows everybody and everything. But the Bible here is referring to a particular group of people. So he foreknew them in a particular way. Different than foreknowing everything. He knows everything. Second, if God predestines people because they're going to believe, then the basis of their salvation is in themselves and in their own merit instead of in him and in his mercy. And the Bible's whole emphasis is on God's free initiative in his grace given to us. So what does it mean? Well, the Hebrew word, going back to your Old Testament, The Hebrew verb to know expresses much more than mere intellectual awareness. It refers to a personal relationship of care and affection. So when God knows people, he watches over them. And when he knew the children of Israel in the desert, what is meant is that he cared for them because he knew them. Hosea chapter 13. I cared for, that is, knew you in the wilderness. I looked over you because I loved you. Israel was the only people out of all the families of the earth whom God had known. Obviously, he knew about everybody. But the only ones he had known in the sense of this intimate affection and love for them were the Israelites, his chosen people with whom he formed covenant. So New Testament scholar John Murray said, No is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. Whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. If you're God's child, he foreloved you. Foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. And it fits in with Moses' great statement. When Moses said to the people of Israel, the Lord set his affection on you and chose you because the Lord loved you. The Lord loved you before you knew the Lord. The Lord loved you before you came into being. And to really pound that home, here's the next undeniable affirmation. God foreknew his people and then God predestined his people. 
Verse 29, those God foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That verb predestined means to decide upon beforehand. We have it used in Acts chapter 4 and verse 28, where it says they, that is the rule, religious rulers and the Roman rulers, they did what your God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Clearly, then, a decision is involved in the process of becoming a Christian. But hear this. It's God's decision before it can be our decision. It's not to deny that all of us who have come to Jesus had to come to Jesus and we had to decide for Christ and do so freely. But it's to affirm that we did so only because he first decided for us. You chose him because he first chose you is what the Bible teaches. And if he didn't love you before you came to be, if he didn't choose you before you chose him, we would all still be in our sin. So one scholar sums the issue up in these words. Everyone who is eventually saved can only ascribe his salvation from the first step to the last to God's favor and his action. Human merit has to be excluded. And this can only be by tracing back the work far beyond the obedience, which we might see in our own lives, or even the faith which appropriates that salvation. But going back to an act of spontaneous favor on the part of that God who foresees and foreordains from eternity all of his works. Dear friends, just pause and think about how humbling that ought to be for you and me. That God loved me before I was born. That God loved me after I was born, even in my sin. That Jesus died on the cross knowing every foul thing I would do in my life. Every evil deed. Now there are two then practical purposes of this predestining of God. Verse 29 gives us the first that we should be conformed to the likeness of his son. In simple terms, God's eternal purpose for his people is that we will be like Jesus. And that transformation process begins here and now in our character and our conduct through the work of the Holy Spirit. But it will be brought to completion only when Christ comes and we see him and our bodies become like the body of his glory. The second purpose of God's predestination is that as, as a result of our conformity to the image of Christ, verse 29, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is... Jesus has, Christ has existed as God the Son from all eternity. But he came as man, and Hebrews chapter 2 says he is not ashamed now to call us brothers and sisters, having become man. But who's the preeminent one in that family? That's what firstborn means, the preeminent one. That he might be the preeminent one, the model to whom everything else is compared, and it's his image that we're being conformed to. So there are these five undeniable affirmations God foreknew his people. He predestined his people. Thirdly, God called his people. We now come to Paul's third affirmation. Though those he predestined in verse 30, he also called. And his call comes to people through the gospel. And it's when the gospel is preached to them with power and they respond to it with the obedience of faith That's when we know that God has chosen them. 
So evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, far from being rendered unnecessary because God is sovereign, it's rather indispensable because it's the means that God has ordained by which he calls his people to come to him and he awakens their faith. Five undeniable affirmations. God foreknew, predestined, called, and he justified his people. Verse 30, those he called, he also justified. God's effective call when someone hears the gospel enables those who hear it to believe, and those who believe are justified by believing, by faith. Justification is more than forgiveness. It's more than being acquitted of our crimes. It's more than even acceptance by God. Hear this. Justification is a declaration that we sinners are now righteous in God's sight because of his giving to us a righteous status, which is the righteousness of Jesus himself. He became sin with our sin so that we might become righteous with his righteousness. God foreknew his people. He predestined them. He called them. He justified them. And then he glorified them. Those he justified, he also glorified. Our destiny is to be given new bodies in a new world, both of which will be transfigured with the glory of God. That final stage, glorification, though it's still future, notice the tense that that's in in verse 30. Glorified is in the past tense, as is the case for the other four. But the other four are indeed past. They've already happened. But this one hasn't happened yet, but it's written like it has. It's what's called a prophetic past. One commentator writes that the tense in the last word, glorified, is amazing. It's the most daring anticipation of faith that the New Testament contains. Why can God say you're glorified past tense? Because God finishes what he starts. He started this in eternity past, and it's as good as done in the mind of God. So he who holds the power of death, the devil is one who accuses us. And we're going to see him make his entrance here in just a bit. But there are the five truths about which God, the Bible says, then we we know. We know these things. Do you in your heart of hearts believe those things? And do they make a difference in your daily life? We don't always understand what God is doing, let alone welcome what God's doing. Nor are we told that God is at work in all these things. He's not at work for our comfort. But we know that in all things, he is working towards our supreme good. And one of the reasons we know this is that we're given many examples of it in the Bible. For instance, this was Joseph's conviction about his brother's cruelty in selling him into Egypt. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Likewise, Jeremiah wrote in God's name a letter to the Jews in Babylonian exile after the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem. He said, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. The same concurrence, confluence of human evil and God's divine plan had its most obvious display in the cross, which Peter attributed both to the wickedness of men and to, quote, God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And it's in light of all of that 
that verse 31 asks this. Please look at verse 31 of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Just before that, what shall we say in response to these things? That is, in light of the five convictions and these five affirmations, what is there that's left to say? What can be added to all of that? And the response is five more questions in the next five verses. And to those five questions, no one and no thing can serve as an answer. And those questions are, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, how will he not give us all things? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer to everyone is no one and no thing can alter that, can change that, can modify that. These five unanswerable questions teach five essential truths that every child of God needs to understand and cherish. So remember the outline? Do you have that? Let me bounce through as much of that as I can, and perhaps we'll continue next week. First of all, no one can stop God's purpose for his people. Now, if Paul, the one who wrote Romans, had simply asked, who is against us? If he had just said, who is against us, then there could be a number of replies to that. We have formidable foes arrayed against us. What about the catalog of hardships, which he lists later in verse 35? They're against us. The unbelieving, persecuting world is opposed to us. Indwelling sin is a powerful enemy. Death is still an enemy, defeated but not yet destroyed. And so is the one that I mentioned earlier who holds the power of death, that is the devil, together with all the principalities and powers of darkness that are mentioned down in verse 38. Indeed, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're together marshaled against us and are much too strong for us. Sometimes when we're under difficulty, it's like the whole world seems to be against us. But the Bible didn't just say... Is anyone against you? <laughs> we got plenty of people against you. The Bible doesn't ask that naive question. The essence of this question is contained in the if clause. If God is for us, who can be against you? If God is for you, better, since God is for you, who can be against you? The situation is one in which God is for us. Since he's foreknown us and predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us. And that being the case, who can be against us? And to that question, there's no answer because there's no one who can prevail. All the powers of hell might set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail since God is on our side. Did you understand that this past week? Do you understand that in the trial that you're enduring? Your spouse, your boss, 
your neighbor, none of them can prevail against God's plan for you. No one can stop God's purpose for his people. His purpose began in eternity past before you existed, and it will absolutely be accomplished in the future in glory. And in between, God is at work to make sure of that. And no one can thwart it. So no one can stop God's purpose for his people. Second, no thing can God withhold from his people. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now suppose that question was asked, will God not graciously give us all things? What if it just said that? In response, we might well have wondered whether the answer is yes, since there are many things we at least think we need, some of which are difficult and demanding and we don't get them. And so we might wonder, how can we possibly be sure that God will supply all our needs? But this question isn't posed that way. It doesn't say, will he graciously give us all things? The way the question's posed removes these doubts because it points us to the cross. The God concerning whom we're asking our question, whether or not he'll give us all things, is the God, hear this, who has already given us his son. On the one hand, stated negatively, he did not spare his son, verse 32. And that language goes back to the story many of you are familiar with, with Abraham and his son Isaac. And God said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And you remember Abraham was willing to do that, an incredible display of faith. And God intervened, and he didn't have to end up going through that. But at the end of that, God said to Abraham, you have not withheld, you have not, that's the word, spared your only son. Same word that's used in verse 32 of Romans 8. And on the other hand, stated positively, God not only did not spare his son, but positively gave him up for us all. Gave him up. It's the same verb used in the Gospels of Judas, of the priests, of Pilate, who handed Jesus over to death. They gave him up. Yet one commentator was correct to write, even though Pilate was involved and the religious leaders were involved and the Romans were involved. He asked, who delivered up Jesus to die? It was not Judas for money. It was not Pilate for fear. It was not the Jews for envy. Who gave Jesus up to die? It was the Father for love. He gave him up for us. And here the Bible argues from the greater to the lesser. Namely, that since God has already given us the supreme and costliest gift of his own son, how can he fail to lavish every other gift that is good for us that we need upon us? Because in giving his son, he gave everything. Hear this, friends. The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. Third, no one can stop God's purpose. No thing can God withhold from his people. And no one can alter God's verdict regarding his people. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
Now, this question and the next one, asking who will accuse us and who will condemn us, they bring us in our imagination into a court of law. Paul's argument is that no prosecution can succeed since God, our judge, has already justified us. And that we can never be condemned since Jesus Christ, our advocate, has died for our sins, was raised from the dead, is seated at God's right hand, and he's interceding for us. So who's going to accuse us? Again, if that question was on its own, you could have many people. Satan is the accuser. And you could say he's the one that accuses and other people accuse. But the point here is that God has justified, God has acquitted And therefore, no accusation can stand. I'm reminded of a vision in the Old Testament where the high priest of Israel was standing before the Lord. He was prepared to serve in his priestly capacity, and yet his garments were filthy. The Bible says that in this vision, Satan stood there as well. The word Satan means accuser. Satan stood there accusing the high priest of his filthy, sinful condition. Here's what it says. The high priest stood before the Lord. And Satan stood at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What an image. That we, that God has intervened to save, were like sticks that were in the fire to be consumed and he has snatched us out. And this high priest is one of them. And it goes on to say, the high priest was dressed in filthy clothes. The Lord said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to the priest, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. That's what Jesus did. When we came to him and we get his robe of righteousness. And he looks at us through his perfection now and not our sin. Friends, the word of God tells us that God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. It tells us that Satan is still up to his old tricks. He's the accuser. The Bible says he accuses the brethren night and day. Look down there. Look at Ken Brown. How could a Christian do or say such a thing? But it's God who justifies. He has declared us to be righteous. He stripped away the filthy garments. He's clothed us in the righteousness of of Christ because of the perfect life that he lived on our behalf. No one can stop God's purpose. No thing can God withhold for his people. No one can alter God's verdict in your outline. No one can overturn God's verdict. It's very similar to the last question. And yet in the answer, it focuses on the reason that God has justified us, namely the work of Jesus. Verse 34 Who's the one that condemns Christ Jesus who died? But more than that, was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In answer to that opening question as to who will condemn, there are again many who might want to. Sometimes our own heart condemns us, certainly tries to. Sometimes our critics, our detractors, our enemies and all the demons of hell But their condemnations will all fail. Why? Because of Christ Jesus, who rescues us by his death, resurrection, his exaltation, and his intercession. Friends, no one can stop God's purpose. No thing can God withhold from his people. No one can alter God's verdict or overturn God's verdict. Last, no one and no thing 
can diminish God's love for his people. No one and nothing, no thing, can ever diminish God's love for his people. And as you go through verses 36 through 39, the final four verses of this amazing passage, he gives us all of the things that vow to separate us from the love of Christ. So what I'd like to do is we will take one more week next week outside of Ecclesiastes. And we will go through those verses and look at all of these things that try to separate us from the love of God. But none of them will succeed. So in closing, friends, I'll give you your take-home truth next week. You don't get a take-home truth. You don't, don't take any truth home with you today. <laughs> we'll get that next week. But as I started out, I ask you, do you know? What do you know about Jesus? What do you know about your God? What do you know about your relationship to him? How's it going to matter this afternoon and tomorrow and all week when you face what you're going through? Do you have reason to be despondent and to be depressed? Sure, if your eyes are fixed upon everything that's going on around you, absolutely, we all do. It's a mess. But if your eyes are lifted up to the God described here and to the Savior and Lord who has done all of this on your behalf, who is moving heaven and earth for your good, then you cannot but be joyful in the midst of all the difficulty and all the mess. And what I find is God's people are not living in the joy of the Lord because they're forgetting what the Lord has done. And yet we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now we're going to bow and pray. And as we do, those of you who know Jesus, thank him for that truth. Thank him for the reminders of that truth. And those of you who came into this room and you don't know Jesus, this is your opportunity for you to express your faith, your belief in who he is and what he's done. And the things that are described here will be applied to you personally. His death on the cross, paying for all of your sin, past, present and future. His perfect life that he lived gives you absolute righteousness before God. But you must come to him and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe you lived and died for me. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what repent means. And you receive Jesus Christ in your life. I give you my life. I ask you to take mine and save me. The Bible says he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you again for allowing us to stand before you. We are able to stand before you because of Jesus, because he is our high priest, because he is victorious over death and hell and the grave, because his victory is our victory. And so even though the consummation has not yet happened in the here and now, with all of the difficulty of this life, it's as good as done. We are as good as glorified in your mind. You are going to make it happen. So tomorrow, this week, oh Lord, help your people to remember that. 
Help us to remember what we know, what we absolutely unshakably know to be true, and lift our eyes then from the people and the circumstances that are the trial and cause our hearts and our minds to be lifted to you and what you're doing in in and through the trial. You're making us like Jesus. You're pursuing your purpose in your people. Lord, I ask you by your sovereign power, by your Holy Spirit, to move on the hearts of some in this room and to draw them out of the world and to yourself, to cause them to see their need for you, to see their own sin in living life for their own purposes and in their own way, so that Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, becomes their Savior and Lord. And Lord, we will bring you the praise and the glory for all of this. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.